This episode is brought to you by farhatamin.com, a website that specializes in Islamic stickers, Muslim activity books, as well as Ramadan and e-decorations. Wholesale and reseller inquiries are also welcome. So visit farhatamin.com today. Assalamu alaikum. The episode today is actually a episode taken from my husband's podcast, which is called The Thinking Muslim Podcast. What I will be doing is when he has some really interesting guests that I think you would find useful to listen to as well, I'm going to just take his podcast and put it on my own because I think that's just a great way to double up, you know, time. And I don't interview brothers on my podcast, but alhamdulillah, he he has access to them. So uh, it's Dr. Shadi Al-Masri that you'll be listening to. And um, if you want to subscribe, you can just put in the Thinking Muslim podcast into your search engine and um, it will come up. You can see all the other episodes that um, they have. Asalaamu Alaikum. What is a man? And what makes a man? And what is masculinity? It was these questions sent out in a tweet by the Islamic thinker and scholar Dr. Shadi al-Masri that grabbed my attention during a busy workday while scrolling through my Twitter timeline. I'd already been researching the subject for my Thinking Muslim course and so contacted the brother to discuss the matter further and he kindly accepted my invitation to explore the subject. Of course, the issue is not a new one. The debates rage in European and American societies, often punctuated by accusations from both left and right that serve to underscore the unedifying and uncivil debates that the so-called tolerant liberal West has descended to. Jordan Peterson asserts a crisis of masculinity, taunting his feminist detractors with pseudo-scientific claims and theories, the shrill within liberal society finds little intelligent response. Dr Shadi in this debate stands out for his dedication to a nuanced and intelligent look at how revelation informs the Muslim conception of masculinity. How did the revelation and the messenger wasallam's practice nurture an idea of Islamic masculinity? We often read the stories of heroism and courage, of which there are many examples in early Muslim society, and surmise, the early Muslims must be one-dimensional personalities. What I confirmed during this interview was it was far from that. Islam transformed the man from his pre-Islamic state to a multi-layered thinking, just, strong and courageous being, humbling himself in worship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and dedication therein. Just a quick reminder, Please continue to keep us in your du'as. Follow me on Twitter and continue to send me ideas for guests and interviews. Please also look out for our Thinking Muslim courses if you live in the UK. We aim to take an intelligent look at the ideas of liberalism and the Muslim response. I would like to recommend a great small charity whilst you're here that is doing some tremendous work. Muslims in Need. You can find them at muslimsinneed.org. I know some of the volunteers personally. No one takes a wage and they use gift aid to pay for any implementation needs. I highly recommend them. Dr. Shadi, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to my program. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah and thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Shadi, I contacted you having read an interesting Twitter thread where you wrote on masculinity. You start with the questions, what makes a man? What is a man? And what is masculinity? What motivated you to ask these questions? Well, there's a lot of things. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, and I should start with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli wa barik ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam taslima. Now, your podcast is the Thinking Muslims podcast, right? Uh, and I got to tell you right off the bat that... Um, your 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 thing it looks very official. Your brand is very official, right? 
and it it gave me the feeling that this is a serious operation. So that's why I'm here. Uh, the way that you've sort of you know branded the thing, uh, and you have various guests. So firstly, that just wanted to tell you that uh, that whoever's doing this on the back end of your your operation is doing a really good job. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that these days there's a lot of moralizing. There's a lot of policing of language. There's a lot of, um, you know, uh, accusation really of ideas and people. And they use terms, right? They use terms and terms are tend to be, uh, you know, you could say, you know, almost uh, like the Quran says, like names that you made up, right? They're just just words, and there's no set look authority to determine, no agreed upon authority to determine what those words actually mean. Like what what are these accusations mean, right? So you go in and you read someone's you know usage of it, and it's absurd. You then you read someone's definition of it, and it's reasonable, like very reasonable. So you get both sides of the equation. You get sides of the equation where it's totally absurd uh, and yet at the same time uh, totally reasonable. So it got me thinking that we in Islam, one of the value, uh, uh, benefits we have in Islam is that we actually have an authority, authoritative source to the terms we employ and hurl at one another, right? So if you're going to hurl a term at me, uh, luck, uh, fortunately for us in Islam, we actually have a definition for that term. Whether that definition came about as a result of the Quran and Hadith itself, or whether or not the Arabic language, which is like fixed, uh, and its, its meanings are fixed, or um, the, the, the scholars of Islam have you know, come up with uh, agreed upon terms for millennia to the point that, you, and, and it's so widespread, that you're not going to change the meaning of those terms. And even if you did, no big deal. But the point being is that uh, I felt, I always feel uncomfortable around terms that are not solidly defined. Okay. So I set about to, to tackle uh, this one term, which has been thrown around uh, a lot and sometimes with validation. Sometimes I think it's a little bit excessive uh, and almost meaningless. So I set about and thinking to myself, well, what is uh, the meaning of this in, in, in Islam? What is a man in Islam? Uh, what is a rajul in Islam? So I went about doing that and, and based on the Quran and Hadith, uh, you know, put down some pointers. And that was basically the idea behind it. And, and, and so what, what conclusions did you come to about uh, the Islamic perspective on man and masculinity? So the uh, the points are actually not that not, not that many, right? The the point of what makes a man is actually very simple, I would say, right? And it's summarized in the phrase of kawama. Okay, half of it you can summarize half of the whole thing in the phrase of kawama. And the idea of kawama comes from the root of getting up, yakum. Okay. And it has to do with effort and energy and the exertion of effort and energy, okay? And the pushing off of laziness and taking an initiative and taking a risk as well. So uh, you can divide qawama into two parts, being a provider and being a protector, okay? So a, a youth, a male, okay, a dhakar or a male, is, is, enters into this phase of qawama uh, as soon as he basically can can survive for himself so he as soon as he can make his way in life and earn his livelihood he now goes from underneath the protection and care of his father to now himself being a protector and a caretaker so for for example we would say that uh uh someone who a boy who becomes a young man and then graduates and has a job at that point he now has dependents his mother is his first dependent right? Uh, you know, if the, if the dad is dead, or he should participate, he should partake in, uh, you know, in, in taking care of his household, right? That household, he is going to get married and have children, all those. So he's a protector and a provider. 
of his dependents, okay, and a contributor to his community. The second, the third, really, if you divide those into two parts, pr- protector and provider, the third one is being true to Allah, because Allah says, So he defined he, the attribute, or he attached the attribute of being a rajul as being someone who is true to his oath of Allah and not busied by uh, trade, business, which he needs to provide for his family, but he's not busied by that, nor is he busied by, you know, worldly distractions. Okay. And then lastly, the fourth part is the man in himself, the prophet, peace be upon him, emphasized several times uh, that gender is biology and biology is gender. We don't separate the two things in the sense that um, sex and gender are one in the Quran and in the Prophet Muhammad's hadith and in the ijma' of humanity, I would say. Not just the ijma' of the Muslims. If there was such a thing as ijma' of humanity, uh, then that probably, this is one of the issues that it does apply, right? That uh, uh, human beings have ijma' that uh, gender and sex, right? We used to have ijma' today, uh, or, you know, uh, today obviously there's some discussion on it but uh, gender and sex being one thing, and that the male, a man, should di- be distinguishable from a female. Like the two should be distinguishable in the same way that a positive and electric charge on a cord should be distinguishable. Like you can't sell a cord, like one of these uh, to charge cars. I know a lot of people in Europe, they don't drive, but uh, mo- every American household is going to have a cord, right, with a black and a red to, ch- to charge their battery. And then you're going to open your engine and you're going to see their battery have a plus and a minus, right? So you have to distinguish these things. So the Prophet, peace be upon him, many, many times uh, sought for distinguish, uh, a distinction between the look, the walk, the tones, the everything to be slightly distinguished. Now, there could be a middle ground. That's not a problem. But there should not be imitation of the two. So that's really the four things. And when I pass this by a number of ulama, uh, I found that they, you know, pretty much agreed that this, these are the four things that uh, you would say are uh, the four distinguishing marks of, of what a man is. Now, when we consider we live now in a what they would call a post Me Too world, and um, the discussion that we uh, we see all around us is that men uh, are responsible for creating an antagonistic atmosphere in society where women uh, feel uncomfortable in the workplace and feel uncomfortable in in society and uh, men's uh, domination uh, does not come from you know a a biological makeup but rather comes from uh, a socialization which is toxic. Do you think that the term toxic masculinity has at least some truth to it that you know, this male-dominated world has created a, an atmosphere where women uh, feel uh, undermined. Well, you probably would be more fair uh, for a woman to answer that, but I do know that my, um, uh, I, the women that I live with and are in my family, they have said clearly that sometimes, not at sometimes, on a regular basis, uh, they're... Uh, dealt with at the workplace with a type of um, uh, condescension to, to their authority, right? So uh, I don't, uh, uh, this is coming from people who are, are not avowed feminists. They're not radical. They're not extreme. They're not part of any agenda. And they actually hate most of this stuff. Like, uh, you know, they, they don't like all this, um, uh, the excesses of some of these uh, uh, movements that are sort of, you know, decrying every other thing that happens in the world. So coming from them, you have to agree that, yeah, there obviously there is this stuff. And there are uh, times when I even seen, you know, some messages that they get. I mean, it's completely disrespectful. I would fire the person on the spot if he talked to me like that, Right. And yet they take it or that they, 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 they get this because, you know, sometimes they don't want to change their personality, right? And I get from, from, uh, from you know, these conversations that 
I can't do what you do, which is crush the person in front of me and make them get in line, right? Because so socially speaking, it's like they don't want to that to be their personality. Okay. Whereas for a guy, yeah, it's it's a it's sort of more accepted that he could do that and then you could like him the next day. Whereas it's just not gonna happen. And I don't think it's something that that element of things, I don't think is just social, right? I think that's you know, it's a, a bit deeper than just the social acceptance of of that because I don't even believe in separating your personality from workplace and home. It's going to carry over. You can't just shut things off, right? What you do at the workplace uh, and the responsibilities that you have to do at home, uh, you, you can't just expect that you can shut them off. You can't. You're going to be that same person when you go home. So I noticed that they don't want to be that type of person. Okay. They don't want to be that person and they don't want to, you know, become a jerk really. And, and workplaces, I mean, if you want, there's a point where you, sometimes you're going to be a jerk. Right. And, and, uh, but psychologists who uh, developed uh, the term toxic masculinity would probably cite uh, at least some elements of the four definitions of a male as um, reasons behind this toxic masculinity. When a man perceives himself to be a protector and a provider, for example, that certainly leads to, according to uh, psychologists, to a predilection, I suppose, to uh, aggressive behavior and, and a condescension when, uh, when in the workplace or society towards women. I mean, how would you respond to that? Well, I would respond by saying they're fools. They don't, what, what does that even, that makes no sense. It's not, firstly, it's not a perception of protection. It's a reality, right? I mean, okay, let me, let me look at this. You and your wife are sitting, going to a restaurant, okay? Uh, a guy rubs up against the back of your wife, all right? Who's, you're going to sit back and say, you know what? Because of toxic masculinity, I'm going to let you go protect yourself. I, it, 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 people aren't living in reality, right? Secondly, where is the link that you're going to be condescending towards women? Where is the link? That, if anything, it will be the opposite, right? Because why would you, why would you, what is the motivation of you to go sacrifice, right? Uh, your safety or your security for, for the women in your family if you didn't love them. So how is that condescending, right? Uh, as for aggression, having, possessing some aggression, go ask a, a, a woman who is, you know, in a, in a situation you want your husband to be aggressive or do you want him to just be some kind of, you know, a lame, wet noodle? Like what, 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 what do you, what do you want from people to be, you know? Uh, I, I don't understand what these people are saying. These people have spent too much time in textbooks and they themselves don't possess any aggression because they're tend to be melancholic people who are writing these theories who don't possess any fire inside of them. So you don't want them defending you. That's for sure. So to what extent are you in agreement with uh, Jordan Peterson? I mean, we hear a lot about Peterson uh, today, and he argues that uh, liberal society has been influenced by, uh, I, I suppose, this obsession with trying to emasculate the man. And um, as a result, uh, the male in, in Western societies have no place and, and have lost uh, I think he calls it, you know, a, a crisis of masculinity. To what extent would you agree with his analysis of, of uh, where things have ended up? Well, it's good that you bring that up. Um, you know, and he's a lot more relevant than some of these uh, shrinks sitting in a room, you know, writing stuff. Uh, but I don't listen to his stuff, to be honest with you, not for any per uh, for principled reason, but I just never really, you know, I mean, I've seen some clips that everyone else has seen. But the reality is that, to if you if we're thinking solely about if relationships are solely material okay then men are not needed anymore in society okay technology has made them redundant right if you needed a guy to move stuff for you and to protect you or to trans and to help you transport you along the road safely so that you don't get molested or whatever well you don't you don't materially speaking you don't need a guy anymore Okay. All you need from him is his biology for the sake of pleasure and attraction, if that's the way that people roll. Okay. But our take on things is a little bit different. 
our take on things is that material the material element is not the only element in a relationship. So that's our problem with that perception to begin with. Okay. Oh, at least from our perspective as Muslims, and I think as human beings, to be honest, uh, men and women need one another and women need companionship that is a lot more than merely material, fulfilling a material function. They need someone who, I mean, don't people need love anymore? Like, where's that? Right? Don't people need, you know, emotional support? Don't they need, as Muslims, an imam? in your life to, to help you on this path of deen. So let's say hypothetically in a situation where you had a man completely redundant and the way that life brought it about is that she's far better at school. She's far better at sitting still than he was far better at studying abstract theories from textbooks than he was went on to be a a doctor and a lecturer in a medical school or a a lawyer or something where her degrees helped her. Meanwhile, like he's a hyperactive type of guy, couldn't sit still and he, you know, sells mobile phones. Okay. So let's say this could happen in a society in a, for a couple. All right. She makes five times more than him. It could happen. What do we say about these people? Do we throw these guys in the garbage now? Do we say that you're totally useless? You should be ashamed of yourself? No. As long as the guy is putting his effort in, okay, uh, yeah, she might out, you know, uh, earn him. But you think that she doesn't need his care, his love, his imam uh, uh, in the household, his raising of the children. She doesn't need any help with that, right? Physically speaking, if she gets accosted or assaulted or called names, and I don't know about you, maybe not in London, but I know I've been out with my wife and she's been called names, right, for her hijab. And I've had to do something about it, right? Now, do you think that uh, my wife is going to be happy with some guy who, like these uh, psychiatrists who make up these terms, is going to sit and analyze the situation or just take action, right? So, so if we limit it to material, then Jordan Peterson is right. But my point is that that's a very superficial way of looking at the world, that it's just earning power and that's it. Yeah, earning power is a big deal, okay? Uh, but it's not the only deal. And I'm telling you, there are out there some cases where, where I might not like it, you might not like it for yourself, but we can't decry it as a religious thing that, okay, you're to be looked down on because you don't earn as much as your wife, or that you don't, you're not as smart as her or that you're not as sophisticated, or blah, 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 whatever else Jordan Peterson is saying, right? Uh, or you're not as needed in the, as you are in the past for the material. So I'm saying there's a lot more than the material. I, I suppose P- uh, Jordan Peterson's argument, uh, as well as what you've, uh, you've, you've really well outlined there, is that uh, when it comes to uh, the role of men now in the West, even beyond... Uh, the financial contributions and the material contributions, men uh, don't know their place at all. And um, uh, almost that liberal society has emasculated the man and, and has turned a man in, into uh, a, uh, I suppose, a, a, a symbol of um, redundancy, right? And, and men no longer have a, have a role or a place. Now, how would, uh, from an Islamic perspective, how would... Islam uh, summarize the role of a man beyond being uh, the protector and, and provider? I mean, how would, give me a picture of uh, life in an Islamic society for a man. Well, first of all, I'm glad you're actually asked, bringing some content to the table because I come to a lot of these podcasts and I just talk and talk and talk and the, 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 you know, the host doesn't bring anything to the table. So first of all, you're bringing a lot of good stuff to the table. And what I would say about uh, that comment by Peterson is like what I think it's all human beings uh, in modern society don't know their place, not just the men. It's, it, and I'm not defending that, right? But you, like, does it look like women know their place when they're you know, signing up for pornography and, and to be you know, jammed and penetrated by machines and, and by 63 guys and have you know, semen dumped on their faces? So uh, is that, are they like on the right track or something? Now, obviously, that's not all, but that's a symptom. 
if the pornography industry wouldn't exist without women, and it's the biggest, it's bigger than national, the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, and NASCAR combined. Okay, it gets more views than all these things combined. So, uh, so human beings don't know their place uh, in a wor- world where there's no absolute. That's the summary of it. When you don't have an absolute that's fixed, then you don't even know where you're revolving around. Okay, and you don't know where you're going. Okay, that's just the nature of things. So uh, it's not just men who don't know their place. It's human beings in general who don't know their place in the world. Uh, That's what I'm seeing as a general uh, thing. So your question was, what is a man's place? Well, it's still his, his, we have plenty of direction in our religion. We have so much direction, okay, that you don't have time to be wondering what I'm supposed to do. That's number one. Number two, you have a threat behind that direction too. And that's actually one of the most things that people don't like the most, but in fact is one of the most beautiful concepts, right? Which is the concept of hell. Okay. Because hell is a concept, Aveb, punishment, torture, is a concept that moves you out of your laziness. Like if you were thinking twice about something, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made you think real fast. So you never get analysis paralysis about certain things. Right? You never have time to overanalyze certain things because your God is telling you you have to do it. Right? And then over time from doing it, you learn your wisdom. You learn the wisdom behind it. Okay? Uh, when we look at uh, the life of a young man, okay, I, I see young Muslim youth, if they know their deen and they're guided by people who know their deen, they're actually very busy. There's no time to be, uh, uh, to be lost in wondering and pondering who I am, and discovering myself, right? I mean, read Surah Al-Baqarah. You're Allah, he created you, you don't need to discover yourself. You, he, he created you. What you, you might discover about yourself, you know, certain specifics, like what is my specific role in this community? What is my specific, you know, talent? What is my career? All that stuff. But I don't see that uh, uh, how a Muslim who's, De- devoted to this book can feel lost in the wind when you have personal spiritual obligations and prohibitions okay to worry yourself about and then in order to live you're going to need to earn and marry just to fulfill this this critical need right uh of sex and desire uh and and some people say oh so you're, you're saying marriage is about sex. Well, I mean, unless you're living on some other planet, that's a big portion of it, right? I mean, are we going to police our language so, so much that we don't even talk about reality anymore? Like, do you think that if uh, men did not have desire, okay, that they would marry? Look at men who can have sex without marrying. They don't marry, right? They don't get married. They just, they have what they need. So it is a humongous portion of the equation and and if that's politically incorrect well so be it uh it's not the only part but it is a humongous portion of it okay so muslim who is on his dean is very busy and there's no there's no time to to be having these you know existential crises and and you know sitting on couches and you know discussing what my role is in the world now, now tell me about early Muslim society. So I suppose our example comes from the Prophet wasallam and uh, the Sahaba and their society. Uh, really, my, my question is in, in two parts. Firstly, to what extent did Islam differ from uh, early Arabian society in terms of masculinity? Uh, did Islam build upon uh, the predefined roles and lifestyles of, of men in those, those societies, or did Islam radically change and shift the role and the attitude of men? And, and I suppose, secondly, um, how did the Sahaba uh, acclimatize to uh, this role, if, if indeed the role was different to pre-Islamic Arabia? Well, one of the things that Jahiliya does, uh, an age of ignorance, is that it alienates uh, certain people for matters that are totally out of their hands. And there were a number of Sahaba who felt this, right? Uh, one of them was 
Julaibib, for example. There's another Sahabi whose name actually skips my mind right now. But these Sahaba, there was one Sahabi who, in fact, never sat with men. And the reason he never sat with men was that he was described as short, uh, poor, ugly, weak, and of no lineage. He was described with five things, okay? His look, his strength, his size, uh, like he he wasn't tall, he was short. He wasn't handsome. He was ugly. He was of no lineage. And on top of that, he was poor. Okay. And so he would be shooed away by men and he would feel so inferior uh, when he was around regular men. Okay. Um, why do I bring up that example? Is because jahiliya and what you would call, or what the, you know, today's society would call this toxic masculinity right? If we want to use that term. Uh, and I don't have a problem as long as we define what it means, right? Uh, if we use that and say that the first people that this harms is not women, it's other men. Okay. Uh, it harms other men like these Sahaba and the messenger وسلم, when he came to Medina and saw some of these dynamics, he elevated these men. Okay. Uh, Ibn Mas'ud was someone that the prophet peace be upon him sort of, if we could say, went out of his way, right? Like he did with not many Sahaba to elevate them in the sight of the other companions. So for example, one time Ibn Ibn Mas'ud, who was so thin that when it was windy, other Sahaba had to hold him down. And he was on a tree getting a miswak for the messenger one time when they were traveling. Uh, And a wind came and blew up his thobe that showed his legs and the Sahaba could not help but laughing, start laughing, right? They laughed at how skinny his legs are. The messenger said, what makes you laugh? Right. And he said, uh, they said, I, I, we've never seen legs that are this skinny. Like it's like unreal. It's like, uh, never, I didn't even, they didn't know like human beings were made like this. So he said, they're skinny in your eyes, but with Allah Ta'ala, right. Uh, they are great. They're grand. Okay, uh, Jul, uh, these, this other Sahabi who was very self-conscious that the men don't look at him, the men don't want to sit with him. The Prophet ﷺ saw him one time in the marketplace and put his eyes, covered his eyes, and said, uh, uh, "Who will buy the slave from me?" And at first he was he was um, you know wiggling. Then he realized it's the messenger of Allah, so he stopped. And then he kept saying, the Prophet said, who will want to buy this, this slave from me? Then to show you that the man, you know, he didn't even have the confidence in himself to, to joke. You know, like when, when someone makes fun of himself, right? It sort of shows that he's sort of confident in himself, right? And when you allow that other people laugh, you know, with you at maybe something at your expense a little bit, not, you know, not excessively, but a little bit, it shows that you're confident in yourself. Uh, you're, you're satisfied with how things are. So this man, he immediately became sad. And he said, if that's the case, O Messenger of Allah, you'll find me to bring you no wealth. Okay? You'll, uh, no one will buy me. So uh, this, the Prophet then announced, rather, you are with Allah, very expensive. You're very pricey with Allah. So that Sahabi from there on, when the Messenger of Allah makes such a pronouncement, he became special in the sight of Allah, right? Um, and pe- in the sight of the Sahaba. So the Sahaba started to go out of their way, you know, to include him. Because that is basically essentially a guarantee of paradise. When the messenger says that you are uh, with Allah, expensive, valuable, pricey, okay? Uh, then the Sahaba now would ask for his dua. They would, ask, they would make sure you know, that he felt they would go out of their way, okay? So the Messenger of Allah went around to break down these things that were ruining these jahidi concept of masculinity that were ruining other men, okay? Before we go on and speaking about what he did for women, let's just look at what he did for the men first, right? Because toxic masculinity is not something that benefits all men, okay? Uh, so that's the first thing. So another, another example is Julay Bib, who couldn't get married because of his look, 
who was not handsome. So the prophet came to a very elite type of family and said, and he knew that they had a very pious daughter. And he said to them, I would like to discuss marriage. And they were so happy. Okay. That the messenger wants to discuss marriage. Okay. So they then, uh, you know, got excited and he said, no, this is not for me. This is for someone else that I'm concerned about. And they said, okay, who it is? Uh, who is it? She, he said, it's Julie B. And uh, the husband, he, ha- he got out of it by blaming his wife, basically, and saying, well, you know, this marriage is a matter of uh, the, the women, and we have to discuss it with the women of the family, et cetera, et cetera. So then he goes, and the homes in Medina, if you ever took a tour of Medina in Umrah, they'll tell you, like, within, you know, a quarter mile radius, the homes of so many Sahaba. So the homes were packed tight like a camping site in Medina. And so when the man went back and the prophet was sitting with some Sahaba, the, the people heard the wife saying, Julebib, Julebib, yelling, Julebib. And she said, by the life of Allah, which is a prohibited oath, we will never marry Julebib. Okay. So how do you think the man felt? in front of the whole world, the whole society, right? That he's being yelled at. But the woman is like putting him down like this, right? Now, the, the girl said, if the, she, she, she was born on Iman, right? Prophet came when she was very young. So the messenger, so she said, uh, what, what is it? How do you think? How are you thinking? Okay, if the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, brings a suggestion it in it will be all of goodness okay and so she said by allah i'm accepting the proposal all right of the the suggestion of the messenger of allah so she then went and she married julebib and they did have uh, children as well okay uh so um at that point uh the 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 pattern continues Bilal al-Habashi, Omar, the pattern continues with the tabi'in, I mean with the sahaba. That Omar ibn al-Khattab, when he referred to Bilal, he saw one time Bilal and Abu Bakr sitting together. He referred to Bilal as uh, our master who was freed by our other master. Okay, Because new Muslims, don't forget, don't think that the sahaba were all the same. They were brand new converts, were coming into Islam not showing respect to people that they didn't really know, like, like Bilal. They weren't showing him respect because they still had this jahiliyyah. So Sayyidina Umar actively went about altering this. He actively went about uh, reminding everyone who's who. Okay? Uh, likewise, even from the elites, uh, Sayyidina Ali from Quraysh, for example, was not always respected. He was not always respected. Okay, because of he he was short, very dark, bald, and he had a paunch of a belly, and he was also uh, uh, his personality was not outgoing. He was not like an outgoing personality that um, you know everyone would love, and he was not tall like Omar to to impose himself on others. So a lot of people felt you know a little distant and, and uncomfortable around him. Okay, or they stayed away from him. If they were close to the dean, they consider him the most charismatic person uh, and the and the you know the most amazing person that you could you could that could be. So the prophet always talked about that people will have gulu, like almost like extremism on both sides of Sayyidina Ali. They will either dismiss him, or they'll see beyond his uh, uh, his material elements. And they'll elevate him even beyond, uh, even to, to excess even, okay? And his rank is so high that the Prophet said, if you want to see Prophet Nuh and Prophet Isa, and he has this, this amazing hadith, all combined in one person, like not them themselves, but the character, like the, the wisdom of this Prophet, the zuhud of this Prophet, then look at Ali bin Abi Talib. Uh, the manaqib of Sayyidina Ali are just manaqib being the virtues the, that the Prophet said. It's just unreal. He outstrips everyone of the Sahaba in terms of the amount, the sheer 
amount of times the Prophet praised him. Now, why is that? Now, like one of the reasons is because it's true. Another reason is that it needed to be stated. You won't find that Omar bin Khattab needs the Prophet's support when it comes to socialization. Right? Sayyidina Omar is going to get your respect whether you like it or not. Okay. So he doesn't need help in that. But others did. So in, in the context of uh, you know, what, you're, what you're asking, part of our society and our life is to reevaluate these standards. And if you want to know that what did Islam do to the early community? You know, what did the pro- prophetic message bring to the early community? It brought a reevaluation of the standard of things away from the material. Okay. And I'm telling you, a lot of times these secular writers who say a lot of things that drive you nuts, right? Probably some of those shrinks that are sitting in the rooms and writing these textbooks, they say a lot of smart things too, right? A lot of intelligent things that we would agree with as well, that I would agree with, and they should, they deserve credit for it as well. So, uh, you know, so, so that's basically where I would bring it. And I've seen in, in the world of uh, discussion of toxic masculinity and discussion of privilege, I see a lot of wisdom and a lot of, um, uh, you know, pre- precise and, you know, insightful commentary, right? As well as some things that I think that are excessive and wrong, right? But I do see, and I have to, you know, give credit where credit is due, a lot of insightful commentary, uh, perceptive is the word that I should say. So, uh, you know, we, we, can, we can accept those things. Uh, but ultimately, you know, that's the summary of what I think that the Prophet did, وسلم, is that he rectified the men themselves' understanding. And, and, and the examples you, you, uh, you raise are really pertinent and interesting examples of men who uh, in uh, pre-Islamic Arabia would have been seen to be deficient because of lineage and, and looks and, and strength and size. Um, and uh, Islam came along and uh, uh, placed them on a on a higher and on an equal footing, I suppose, with uh, with uh, other Muslim men like Omar bin Khattab, who was, as you said, who who was um, muscular and strong and and showed more readily, I suppose, those masculine traits. But I'm interested in Sayyidina Omar. Now, Islam refashioned the uh, the society to accept those men who didn't conform to uh, the uh, to, to the common perceptions of masculinity. Did Islam do anything with the uh, the masculinity that may have been exhibited by uh, those like Omar bin Khattab, who who of course before Islam was was, and he admitted to this later was brash and. And uh, uh, was um, I suppose he he may have fit the ser- stereotype before Islam, of course, of what uh, the psychologists would call a a person who uh, who fits who's who's category A when it comes to uh, the toxic masculinity. How, how did Islam deal with uh, those traits that that existed in Sayyidina Omar? Okay, that's another really good question. So I mean, you're on a roll with good follow-ups here, uh, but uh, Sayyidina Omar. Uh, was um, and and believe it or not, I haven't really uh, outlined this as much, but maybe I should. Is that his attitude and his approach, which we can say is the the, the hallmark of that of what you would say is machismo or you know uh, of of masculinity at the time. No one is going to surpass Say Nomar. Everyone loves him. No one will even reach him. Uh, because of the sheer brilliance that he possessed, the street smartness, his, 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 his intellect was something else, and his gut instinct was something else. His fire was not to be matched. His um, street, uh, did I say street smarts? Because he was literally raised on the streets. And his size, on top of that, his size was, he was literally like near to seven foot tall, if you can judge it that the horses in that day and age, he would stop a horse by dragging his feet. So his height was ridiculous. And he was of uh, a very a fair complexion and a handsome complexion. He was fair and uh, a handsome complexion, which the Arabs and Jahiliya, and still now, all the Arabs, to be honest, we can't, like, we're not going to fake it. They prefer the light skin and the lighter eyes. And he possessed that. Okay. Later in life, he had he was he he grew bald like other men, uh, 
and he used to keep his hair long, right? And his hair would reach the, the you know, when people have, they're bald, but the, they, the back of their hair, they just keep it long. And so he used to do that. And, it, and uh, his mustache was long and he used to actually Twitter, uh, you know, like twist his mustache when he was thinking. So no one's going to reach Sayyidina Omar. But Sayyidina Omar went through, if you read the hadiths, over a decade of the Prophet ﷺ polishing and molding this human being. And if you look at all of the hadiths of this molding, it is tempering the nature of Umar ibn Khattab from the speed of anger, right? And the uh, heart, uh, harshness of response, he's tempered all of these. So there are 13 ayahs of the Quran in which the brilliance of Sayyidina Umar is manifest. Okay? His brilliance is manifest by him uttering a phrase and the Qur'an coming down, revelation, with the same exact phrase. Okay? And the Siyuti adds nine more instances where Sayyidina Umar made a, made a judgment or asked the Prophet if he could do something, right? Or suggested to the Prophet to do something, and the Qur'an came down to confirm the judgment of Umar. So that's a total of 22 times. 13 verbatim and 22 in, in meaning. Now, we also have 13 instances, according to some of the collections, and some, some of them have actually made it to 22, if they added different subcategories, of the Messenger of Allah, وسلم, uh, tempering and correcting the reaction of Umar ibn Khattab. Right? So that, for example, a man came to the Umar ibn Khattab and said, and he said, uh, uh, came to the messenger, peace be upon him, and said, pay back your debt. You sons of Hashem, don't pay back your debts well. A Jewish man came to the prophet. used to always take the, his loans from the Jews uh, so, because he knows that if he asked him a Sahabi, it wouldn't be fair because a Sahabi would never say no. Right? So he needs to, in, and in business, you can't have haraj. You can't have hardship or embarrassment in business. So he used to go to the Jews who are very comfortable telling him no. They don't believe in a bigger thing, which is his prophethood. So the messenger used to take his loans when he needed a financial loan from a Jew. And he needed loans mainly to give charity to the poor, not for himself. He never used a loan for himself, but he, he, he used to uh, take loans for charity uh, to the poor. And so Omar ibn Khattab immediately, within a blink of an eye, Omar's sword was on his neck, this man's neck, right? And that's what I'm telling you. This is why Hassan al-Basri says, if you're depressed, read stories of Omar. Because Omar is a fire, as a shining sun, right? He, you'll be out of your depressedness. There's no such thing as depression and Omar in the same sentence, right? So uh, the Prophet then said, Omar, teach him to tell, to ask politely, right? And you rep correct him politely, right? And go to such and such and get the money from here and take him with you, and add to the money because of what you scared him by. Okay? So what is the Prophet uh, showing here? He's showing that justice is in feelings too. The word eva in the Arabic language, is hurt, the bare minimum of it is hurt feelings. So eva, harm, is about feelings too. Now, Umar ibn Khattab is not someone who ever cared about feelings. The Prophet taught him to care about feelings. Now, if you look at his Khilafah, aside from the point that he's conquering three major pieces of land, uh, the Persians, the, Syria, uh, the, the Romans in Syria, and the Romans of Egypt, okay, besides that, he conquered these three, which is just, I mean, an uh, unreal accomplishment. Like, it's, just, it's of, uh, beyond historic, it's at the level of legendary that accomplishment, and how he kept it together for that period of time. Uh, you also find the local stories of Omar, and the local stories are very different, okay? They're not, you will never find a, a, a conqueror have this, the local stories that he has. So these local stories involved Omar's nighttime reconnaissance missions, okay? And nothing is more beautiful that brings tear to your, tears to your eyes than Omar's nighttime, evening reconnaissance missions. When the, the moon was 
soft and no one would know who he was. He would go out with a servant of his, some of the youth, and he would go around listening for conversations that were loud enough to be heard from the street. Okay. And one of these he found crying babies. Okay, no problem. Uh, crying babies. And he knocked on the door and he said, who are these babies and why are they crying? And this lady who's living on the outskirts of Medina, she says, well, um, you can go ask Omar. He's the one who sent out my husband, my father, my brother, and my uncle. They're all fighting wars for Omar. And he's left us like this, right? So Omar began to shake. Why? Because he, the messenger taught him, this soul right here in front of you, you don't judge her by what you see. You judge from the lens of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whom, for whom there's no big and small, right? If a heart is innocent and it calls upon its Lord, its Lord will answer. So Omar went shaking to the Beit al and got food and went back and cooked it. And the servant said, let me cook it. Let me carry it. And the Omar said to him, I'll carry it because you're not going to, are you going to carry my sins on the day of judgment? Right? Let me carry it. He cooked it the whole time. He fed the kids. Okay. And uh, uh, the, as the kids were eating, then the servant said, all right, Omar, let's leave. I mean, the servant's tired, right? It's like, deep into the night because Omar was such a man that didn't need much sleep. And in his Khilafah, they often say that he would spend uh, from Aisha to Fajr, awake, and sleep a little bit after Fajr, that's it, or before Dhuhr. Okay. So Omar said, no. Not only did we find them hungry, we found them crying, right? So we're not going to leave them merely with a full stomach, we're going to leave them laughing. So look at the, de- the, the degree of perceptiveness of people's emotions that Sayyidina Omar is, is, is displaying here. He's not just display, looking at the function. All right, I fed you. I paid for this house, right? I'm feeding you. I'm paying your bills. No, he's looking at emotions. He's looking at quality of life, right? And this is something that no way that pre-Islamic Omar would have cared about. So the Prophet taught him these things. So what did Omar do? Sayyidina Omar, this, this conqueror, this legend, okay, this man of men, leader of men okay uh gets on his knees and starts playing horsey with the kids he starts actually having the kids on his back and then going and bumping into the other kid and falling and rolling and then until the kids are just cracking up and laughing and then the mom sees this and she's laughing right and then he leaves at that, okay? Then the mother comes, and Omar ibn Khattab says to her, uh, anytime you need something, come to the masjid, okay? So she goes. A couple days later, that lady comes, and she comes to the masjid, and she said, um, she finds Omar, and she said, oh, it's you. Thank you for, la- uh, for the other night, for helping us the other night. And you said that I can come here if there's any need. Uh, so can you show me where Omar is? Because I have some needs. And the Sahaba were just, their jaw were dropping, right? And someone whispered to her ear, that is Omar, right? And she, her eyes just welled up with tears and began to weep, never imagining that this is what your leader is, right? I mean, and we wonder why the people had iman in those days. When that's your iman, Right? you're going to know this message is true, right? So, uh, so um, when you ask about what happened to the, 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 the fringe people who were, whose the standard of masculinity was, was against them, we looked at that. When you look at the guys who were, the standard of masculinity is in their favor, we looked at that too. And one of the hallmarks of Omar, if you notice, is, is he's of, there's two Omars. There's the weeping Omar, and there's the conquering Omar, okay? And the weeping Omar is with other believers, right? With the, when he sees a mu'min, Omar knows that that mu'min has rights with the king of kings. 
and Omar is very careful to observe those rights. And then the dominating Omar is the Omar that uh, is so quick to crush enemies and heretics and people, you know, things like this. So there was a man who came to Omar bin Khattab and he complained of another guy in Kufa who was asking heretical questions, like the questions that bring doubt into people's mind, right? Like, do you think Sayyidina Maryam really had a child out of wedlock, right? I mean, astaghfirullah, uh, uh, without a father, right? Uh, and questions like that, like bringing doubt. So Omar said, bring him. He brought him. And Omar said, are you the man who says this, this, and this? And the man says, yes. Okay. So Omar picks up his own stick and starts beating the lights out of this man. All right. And the people are like, what is this? Right. Omar is so perceptive. He knows, like, you have to stop these things before they carry on. There's no such thing as, oh, let's have intellectual this, that, and the other, and open space. You're talking about Allah. This is not, uh, we're talking about economic plans. We're talking about the environment. This is Allah, okay? And Allah has rights. And don't even go there. It's not even good for you. You don't go and say, well, let's have an open mind. And let's have intellectual or whatever, rational inquiry. Or let's have an open dialogue. When it comes to Allah, do we have an open dialogue about the virginity of your wife and, the, and, and your wife's uh, whereabouts last night? No, I don't think so, right? So there are certain things that are off limits. And Omar ibn Khattab displays this. And that's why the deen was safe. Not only were people happy, the poor were happy with him, right? The deen was safe. So he shut things down. And he brought this man and he, he, he did this three times until the man said, oh, Omar, kill me. Just kill me, right? And there was another incident, incident in which Sayyidina Muawiyah, the Sahabi, uh, all of the governors were called to Medina for a talk, uh, for a meeting. And Omar used to have these, these meetings every once in a while. And Sayyidina Muawiyah was the last person to walk in and the masjid was full and the governors were all sitting with Omar at the front of the masjid. And, you know, people are watching, all these governors are coming in, and, you know. And Sayyidina Muawiyah walks in. And Sayyidina Omar gets up, immediately charges at him and beats him with his stick and kicks him while he's down. And then he goes to sit back. And Sayyidina Ali was right next to him because Sayyidina Ali is his right-hand man. And he said, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, the man did nothing wrong. He said, and I wasn't punishing him. I saw the arrogance in his eye and I wanted to beat it out of him. Like I'm the, I'm the Amir of Syria, I got new clothes. I have a guard, right? I have all this stuff. And he saw that and he said, and Omar immediately, there's only one solution to this. You're not going to walk in and everyone's watching this arrogance Then people might imitate it, right? He goes there and he beats him down, okay? And he's rolling in the dirt, okay? So Omar removed the arrogance from people, okay? So Sayyidina Omar... He, there's two Omars, and you have to look at which one. And the, the, the problem is when someone tries to be like Omar, but he doesn't find anyone except like his wife to bully around, right? <laughs> or like some poor Muslim or, you know, uh, you know, you're picking on other Muslims. And that's, to me, you know, a misapplication uh, of the thing and sort of some type of naivete. Uh, if, you're, if you want to bully someone, if you're in the mood to pick a fight, and that's your personality, go find a muqtada. Go find some innovator who's destroying uh, the, or transmitting a falsehood about the deen. Go find the real enemies of Islam who are conquering our lands and go beat them up, right? Don't come and, and, and pick on, you know, some miskeen Muslims who, because you don't like one opinion that they said, or you don't like something like that. No, Sayyidina Omar for the Muslims was really honestly like a lamb. He was really like a lamb with, pious Muslims. Even if he differed, he would say, everyone can have an opinion. I mean, their opinion is free for all people to have, right? So he, he didn't uh, impose his subjective opinions on people. And this is sometimes, maybe people don't, might not realize this, but he never actually imposed subjective opinions on people. 
if all opinions were given and there was no verse, no hadith, and no consensus, he went with his own opinion. But that's because there was no verse, hadith, or consensus. If there, if there was a consensus developed, he did not follow his own opinion. He went with the consensus, right? So uh, he was not an autocrat in that respect. You, not, you will not find anyone calling for shura as much as Omar. He called for uh, the, the um, you know, opinions of the intelligent for everything that didn't have a direct verse or a hadith. I mean, you, you're describing here people who have a lot, of, a lot of nuance to their personalities. There are many layers to their personalities. Here is someone who humbles himself in front of a, uh, a starving woman um, and um, uh, he conquers lands, right? And uh, here's someone who's uh, restraining his nafs to uh, to uh, remove uh, the remnants of jahiliyyah that may still exist within him uh, uh, as an order of the Prophet wasallam, and, and his personality is incrementally refining. Now, the problem we face is in, in, in our in, in our current predicament is, especially amongst young people, I mean, I think for all of us, of course, but for young people in particular, um, that those layers are quite hard to develop and build. Uh, a young man living in uh, a Western uh, society, in a liberal society, uh, is influenced by uh, what he sees around him. And it's often the case that uh, those grades, those those layers just don't exist in his personality. You know, he goes through a, a very troublesome teenage years. And, and uh, during that period, he rebels against everyone and, any, and everything. And he comes out uh, from those teenagers, probably in his mid-30s, right, where he, he begins to mature and, and think about um, settling down, as, as they describe. I suppose my question to you, Dr. Shadi, is how does one, especially amongst Muslim youngsters, how does one develop these these layers of personality and, and refine the, those male personalities so that we can emulate those Sahaba and, and their traits? Well, there's only one answer to that, and that is uh, good suhba. And so, the meaning of suhba is like constant company like in all their states, uh, whether it's a official capacity, like as a class, or whether it's walk, uh, a visit, or whether it's, um, you know, eating together, it constant company exposes a person to the, the various uh, situations that a learned, mature Muslim, maybe scholar, will be in, and we get to see their reaction in those situations. Uh, it's uh, suhba of learned Muslims is one thing. Uh, believe it or not, a good spouse who knows her th- stuff as well, Be- a smart, intelligent spouse, you can't underestimate that. I mean, I could tell you my personality has been, uh, you know, formed mainly by my dad, uh, you know, but uh, my my wife also brought a perspective that I never really thought about, right? Like, um, I guess you could say, I will not say softens it, but showed a little bit of perspective on the importance of emotions. Like, uh, not, you know, not bulldozing people or not, uh, or not forgetting to think about uh, how people feel about actions and, and words and whatnot. Uh, a lot of those things, uh, I wouldn't even say softening. I would say refining. Okay, and also talim knowledge has the element of telling you which fights you can pick and be rough with. Quran actually says, "Jahd al kuffar wal munafiqin alayhim." Right, fight against those enemies of faith and hypocrites and be rough with them. Right, waghlud, be rough. It didn't say like be soft, be rough with them. Right, and though that those are the enemies and traitors and hypocrites and, and hypocrites being in this in this verse meaning. Uh, imams calling to heresy. So uh, I would say it's a combination of suhbat al-ulama, companionship of imams and scholars, and also the opposite uh, in, uh, gender in someone's life, because that sort of you know, gives you a different perspective. Um, I've always thought that spouses should have the same beliefs, the same taste, but different temperaments. Right. That's sort of my take on 
I don't do like marriage stuff, but if I did, that would be my take. My take is that um, different um, uh, beliefs, uh, sorry, different beliefs are a problem. Different tastes are a problem, right? If you don't like anything that she brings into the house as, you know, furniture, de decoration or something, that's going to be a problem. You're not going to be happy in your own home. If she, every time she buys you a shirt or cooks you food or you do something for her and you don't know her tastes and you try to buy her a gift and it's a disaster every single time, it's not going to be a happy marriage. So taste is very important. Like what you guys find funny, what you guys find, um, you know, uh, what you guys find to be nice to look at, etc. Uh, that should be the same. But uh, temperaments should be the opposite. Like if you have two melancholic, uh, uh, a melancholic husband and wife, four kids are going to go crazy, right? If, if you have uh, two who are very fiery, they'll, they'll kill each other. So if you, like they, they say, they call these types of personalities like fire, air, water, dirt, right? Or earth. Okay, so there, there are certain ones that complement and certain ones that don't. So you want to look for that complement where uh, the, each one brings a perspective to the other. And so to me, marriage itself is a learning, it's, a, it's an experience of knowledge. Like you gain knowledge, you learn, and then you have so many years together that it becomes part of your personality now, right? What you've learned, what you've acquired is now part of your personality. What you have naturally, like what's innate within you, you're always going to have. So you don't need someone to teach you that. But you do need someone to teach you the other side of the spectrum. So that's where, and, and that acquired uh, characteristic becomes, uh, uh, becomes a, uh, you know, innate to you. It becomes like second nature. Dr. Shadi Al-Masri, Jazakallah Khair. That was a fascinating exploration, I think, of the topic. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you and uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring uh, goodness from this discussion, inshallah ta'ala. Likewise, you too. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum uh, Jazakallah khair listeners and uh, please do subscribe to this podcast but until next week Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa This episode is brought to you by farhatamin.com a website that specializes in Islamic stickers, Muslim activity books, as well as Ramadan and e-decorations. Wholesale and reseller inquiries are also welcome. So visit farhatamin.com today.